0: Good morning. morning. This morning, uh, we continue our march to the Gospel of Luke and the events that transpired the night in which our Savior was betrayed and handed over to the religious authorities. Last week, we looked at events that took place after the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we focused in primarily upon what was going on with Peter specifically. This morning, we're going to look at what was going on. With our Lord and Savior during that same time frame, and then we'll also note a few things that happened after that as well. And so, uh, also because this is the first Sunday of the month for us as a church, uh, we have set aside some time for us to come to the Lord's table in communion uh, at the close of our service. And so, uh, a lot to get through today. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter twenty-two. Luke chapter twenty-two. Uh, this morning, we're going to be wrapping up our study of Luke chapter 22, but we're also going to be jumping around to the other Gospels in order to get a full picture of all that was taking place this night. So our text in Luke this morning is going to be Luke chapter 22 verses six, from verse 63 on through to the end of the chapter in verse 71. And the title of our study this morning is going to be Sentenced and Tried, okay? Sentenced and Tried. And that title may sound a bit backwards, uh, but I think it will make a little more sense as we get into our study this morning. So with that, will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read through our text from my Bible. I want to encourage you all to follow along in your own Bible. If you don't have a Bible this morning, the number of the chairs around you have Bibles underneath them. Feel free to reach down and grab one of those and follow along. So Luke writes the following for us in chapter 22, beginning in verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day... The elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would be with us as we go through your word this morning, that you would lead us and guide us, that we might understand just uh, the fullness of all that was taking place that night as we uh, look to the other gospel accounts, just to fill in all of the details. I pray that we would understand uh, these trials that, Lord Jesus, you went through uh, for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, give to us expectant hearts and give to us an anticipation to hear from you. Lord, we know that you desire to speak to us, that you desire to minister to us today. And so, Lord, I just simply ask, give us ears to hear all that your spirit desires to say to us, your church. We ask you pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So our text this morning, it picks up right where we left off last week at the conclusion of Peter's denial of the Lord and the rooster crowing as the day was about to break. Now, for some reason, Luke decided not to give us a lot of detail regarding what was going on with Jesus during Peter's denial of the Lord. Luke goes straight from the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to recording the events that transpired involving the disciple Peter. And then he picks up with mentioning how Jesus was blindfolded and beat by those who held him, and then how he was ushered off quickly to the elders of the people and their council as soon as it was day. You know, we get the sense that it was at sunrise, probably between 5 and 6 o'clock in the morning, based upon the time of year that this took place. Uh, That's about the time frame that we're looking at when he would be ushered off to this council meeting. But what happened to Jesus during this time between his arrest and him being ushered off to the council at first light on Friday? Now, we can try our best to put a potential timeline together. We don't have an exact timeline, but we can put bits and pieces together in order to lay out what I could be, I would suggest, is a considerable or at least somewhat of a, a decent timeline. Okay? We know that Jesus is not Jesus and his disciples partook of the Passover meal together. And this was only allowed to be partaken of after sunset. That's the rules. You cannot partake of the Passover meal until after sunset. And so we have to assume that sunset would be around six o'clock at night. And we know that the dinner probably took a good couple of hours because Jesus also washed the disciples' feet after supper, and he also gave to them a long teaching uh, that's recorded in John's Gospel that's referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. We know that after supper, Jesus and his disciples traveled to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And we noted that during that time, the disciples were having a difficult time staying awake. And so I imagine it was probably at least, I think it's safe to say, nine o'clock by that time. If dinner wasn't until six, they have a couple hours of dinner, washing the feet, giving an exhortation, they walk over to the Garden of Gethsemane, it could be about nine o'clock by then, all right? We're also told that Jesus went away and he prayed for about an hour, according to Matthew 26, verse 40, for when he returned and he found his disciples sleeping, he said to them, "'What? Could you not watch with me one hour?' right? You guys remember that? And we know that he went away and he prayed in the same manner two more times. And so if he went away and prayed for an hour, and then he came back and said, hey, you couldn't pray with me for an hour? And then we know when he goes and prays two more times about the same exact thing in the same manner, I think it's safe and it wouldn't be too far-fetched to suggest that Jesus could have spent close to three hours in prayer while in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then immediately after Jesus' time of prayer, when he comes back and finds the disciples for the third time sleeping, we are told that the uh, crowd of people that had come in to arrest him immediately showed up at that time. And so, from the arrest of Jesus, uh, I think we could probably say, hey, if it, they got to the Garden of Gethsemane around nine, he prayed for three hours, the arrest probably takes place around midnight. Um, I can't say chapter and verse, but we can kind of put together a reasonable timeline of sorts. And so, from the arrest of Jesus to him being ushered off to the council represents about a five to six hour window that Luke doesn't really tell us much at all about in regard to what's going on with Jesus, okay? He just follows Peter, you know? And, you know, as we looked at last week, we looked at and talked about how, you know, there was... Jesus, excuse me, Peter warming himself by the fire, that took time as he gathers around with them. Uh, We know that uh, he was uh, first came and there was a certain servant girl that came and asked him about his association with Jesus. Peter denied it, right? That was the first denial. And then we're told in verse 58 that it was after a little while that another came and also accused Peter of being with Jesus. We don't know how long that little while was, Um, maybe we could guess maybe 15 or 30 minutes. I I don't know. I wouldn't say it was immediately right after. It was after a little while. I wouldn't say it was up to an hour because the next reference does tell us it was about an hour. And so I would think he would say that it was an hour if it was an hour. And that brings me to the next thing. It says that uh, he again denied that accusation. Then we're told in verse 59 that after about an hour had passed, Another confidently affirmed their accusation that Peter had been with Jesus because of his speech that gave him away as a Galilean. And so we know this whole ordeal with Peter probably covered maybe a couple hours of the night, but what was going on with Jesus during this time? Okay, we know that Peter's third and final denial probably happened around 5 a.m., right before the sun would rise, because that's when roosters would start to crow. I don't know if you've been around roosters or, uh, or not. They don't crow when the sun is up they crow before the sun even comes up very you know any glimmer of light and then just start going to town okay and so we're probably thinking the denial is about 5 a.m and so we have what would appear about a five-hour timeline of events that took place between the rest of jesus and peter's third and final denial of the lord that luke doesn't tell us anything at all about what happened to jesus And so this morning, what I'd like to do is try and fill in the details that Luke leaves out so that we can get a full and accurate understanding of the events that took place that night. Specifically, we're going to look at the trials that Jesus faced during this time frame. Jesus is going to face three different trials with three different powers, if you will, residing over each of these trials. These are all three religious trials, and he will face three more political trials but that will be in the weeks to come as we continue to weigh our way through the gospel of Luke. Now, in order to get these details, we're going to spend some time in John's gospel and Mark's gospel as well. And so you may want to keep a finger here in Luke and make your way over to the book of John, chapter 18, to be exact. And so if, maybe if you have your bulletin or, you know, some of your Bibles have these fancy ribbons, you know, you can actually use that. Um, <laughs> And leave your spot here in Luke 22, because we will be coming back to it. But look at John chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 12, just to get us going. John 18, verse 12, 13, and 14. Okay? John's just the next gospel over to the right. Unless you're reading from a Japanese Bible, then it's to the left. So, um, Verse 12. says, then a detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. We'll pause right there. And so in these opening verses here in John's gospel uh, account, We pick right up after Jesus is arrested and bound, we're told that Jesus was first led away to a man named Annas. Now, Annas was a very wealthy and prominent man at this time. Previously, he had served as high priest there in Jerusalem at the temple. He was actually appointed high priest in the year 6 AD by Quirinius, who happened to be the Roman governor over the land of Syria at the time. However, later on in the year 15 AD, a new Roman governor was appointed over the region of Judea by the name of Valerius Gratus, and he deposed Annas as high priest. But even though he was deposed of his position by the Roman authorities, he continued to carry a lot of clout and power amongst the Jewish people, and he was still held in very high regard. We actually see evidence of this in the beginning of Luke's gospel when he mentions the ministry of John the Baptist beginning in the wilderness. Luke writes that it was during the time that Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Now, if you know anything about the position of high priest, you know that there is only one high priest that can officially serve in that role at one time. And according to the verses here in John's gospel, Caiaphas was the one that served as high priest that year. Now we know that Caiaphas was actually the son-in-law of Annas. Uh, Though Annas was deposed, he would actually have several uh, family members serve as high priest after him, having a lot of influence and power. And he, Caiaphas, was the officially recognized high priest as far as the Romans were concerned, but Annas still held a lot of power, a lot of sway over the Jewish people, and even over the other religious leaders. Now, we're told an interesting bit of time formation about Caiaphas here in John's gospel. We are told that it was him who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people, This actually alludes to something that Caiaphas said back in John chapter 11. In chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, we read of people going to the Pharisees and telling them all about the things that Jesus was doing. And it caused the Pharisees to panic a bit. They didn't know what to do if they continued to do nothing. They feared that Jesus would gather all the people to himself and potentially lead some sort of revolt and... They feared that the Romans would then respond. They would come and they would take away all their power, take away their positions, their prominence within society. And it was Caiaphas, as high priest, who stood up and said, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And so John tells us, Right after this, that Caiaphas did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And then in John chapter 11, verse 53, we're told that in John's gospel, that from that day forward, they plotted to put him to death, okay? I said the title of our message today would be Sentenced and Tried, okay? Normally, we speak of someone being tried and sentenced, right? Someone goes to trial, then there's a verdict, and then there's a sentencing afterwards. Okay, we found you guilty, and because you're guilty, this is what your sentence is going to be. But this was not the case for Jesus. Jesus was sentenced to death long before he ever went to trial before these religious leaders. In fact, Jesus was sentenced to death even long before Caiaphas ever prophesied of Jesus dying for the nation of Israel and all the children of God. For we read in the book of Revelation, of the book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He was sentenced to die upon the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God before the very foundations of this earth were created. Before the universe was ever made, right? Before time existed, before man was created, God knew that we in Adam would sin. He knew that we would rebel against him as our creator. And in the wisdom and in the love of God in eternity, he predetermined a plan So that we could receive a free gift of salvation. In eternity, God planned for the Son of God to step into history, to provide the ultimate sacrifice. The sinless Son of God would suffer sin's penalty of death. He would be raised from the dead and thus provide us a way of salvation. Okay? God planned this. He predetermined how things would go from the very start. Jesus was sentenced to death from before time ever even began. Before this world was made, before man was made, before man fell, God knew all this would happen, and He allowed it to happen just so we could have a way to be with Him. I want you to think about that for a second. Let that sink in, okay? The love of God is amazing. It is mind-blowing. His desire to be with us, to have a relationship with us, it is unmatched. It is unparalleled, okay? He thinks the, the world of each of us, we are the apple of his eye. He had us in mind before we ever existed, and he wanted to make a way for us to be with him. Romans 5.8 states, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' death sentence was a demonstration of God's love for you, and God's love for me, and God's love for the rest of the entire world. Right? All this was done because God loves you, and because he wants to be with you. God wants To have that relationship with you so badly that before he even created the world, he had this plan in place for each and every one of us. Back in John's gospel, if we jump down to verses 19 through 24, we read of what transpired between Annas and Jesus at his first trial. Read with me verses 19 through 24. It says, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. We're told that Annas, he asked Jesus about two things he asked Jesus about his disciples, and he asked Jesus about his doctrine. Okay? Jesus was, or excuse me, Annas was wanting to know, okay, what are you teaching your people? Okay? What's your doctrine? And what are your disciples learning? And what are they going around telling other people? And Jesus' response was basically, hey, everything I said and I taught, I did so in a public place. I spoke openly and plainly, and if you want to know what I had to say, go ask the people. And this could have been, I believe, a veiled attempt by Jesus to highlight the fact that there were no witnesses at all that had come forward to testify of anything that was deserving of his arrest. Right, The law demanded that there be at least two eyewitnesses willing to testify against someone in order for a trial to be considered legal. And so Jesus is saying, hey, there's a bunch of people that heard what I had to say, that saw what I did, where are they at? Right? <laughs> the whole arrest was against the law. And as high priest Annas would have certainly known this to be true. Well, Jesus' response, it was not very welcomed. We read of how one of the officers struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, slapping his face, basically, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? But Jesus replied, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Again, Jesus brings up the idea of people bearing witness. Jesus is basically saying that he didn't say anything that wasn't true, and that what he said was well, that it was accurate, basically. He did not do anything or say anything that was evil or deserving of the treatment that he received by this officer. And then after this, we're told, Annas decided to send Jesus on to Caiaphas. And so from this first trial, we see that no crime had been committed. Jesus did nothing deserving of death. He did nothing deserving even of the slap That he received from the officer before Annas. And we also note the fact that they didn't even have witnesses to testify against Jesus regarding what he said or what he taught others that was worthy of being arrested or of being treated this way. And so, that's the first trial. Let's move on to the second trial. For this, we will leave our place in John's gospel and we will head over to Mark's gospel in chapter 14. And so uh, if you go back to the left, you got Luke and then Mark, Mark 14. Here we have the details of Jesus's second trial laid out for us in Mark's gospel. And we're gonna read Mark chapter 14, verses 55 through 65. And so follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. It says, Now the chief priest and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven and then the high priest tore his clothes and said what further need do we have of witnesses you have heard the blasphemy what do you think and they all condemned him to be deserving of death and then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him prophesy and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands interestingly enough and perhaps perhaps excuse me not coincidental the first thing that the religious authorities try to gather together here in this second trial are some witnesses that would be able to testify against Jesus. And I think it highly likely that Annas may have had a part in this based upon his previous interactions with Jesus at his first trial. See, at the first trial, Jesus spoke of talking about the people and getting from them testimony of what he said or did that was worthy of their actions against them. And so... I don't find it surprising to see here at Jesus' second trial, the religious leaders trying to find two witnesses who could come together with the same testimony of something Jesus did that was wrong and worthy of the sentence of death. And despite all of their efforts and having many false witnesses, it tells us many people, false witnesses came forward. They were unable to get two of them to actually agree upon anything that Jesus said or did that was against the law or worthy of death. They could not do it, okay, because he did nothing worthy of death. He did nothing to break the law. Realizing that they were going nowhere fast, Caiaphas, the high priest, he arose, he stood in the midst of them all, and he asked Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it? What is it? These men testify against you. No doubt Caiaphas was hoping that Jesus might, you know, say something that would incriminate himself or give them reason to solidify the accusations they were trying to bring against him. But Jesus kept silent and he said nothing. Why would Jesus not say anything? You know, why didn't he defend himself? Why didn't he prove them wrong? Perhaps he remained silent because he knew the testimony itself was false and he wasn't even going to dignify it with a response perhaps because he knew that this entire trial was all a big sham and against the law. So many things that were going on contradicted the law of that day regarding trials. Okay, We know from secular history and books about Jewish history that trials of this nature were only to be heard during the day. Criminal trials must begin and end in the, di- in the daylight. Night trials were against the law, and yet here they are trying to bring accusations, a trial against Jesus in the middle of the night. Also, according to Jewish law, only decisions made in the official meeting place were valid. This meeting at Caiaphas's house was illegal. It had no official standing or bearing. Their law stated that criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover season. Again, according to Jewish law, only an acquittal could be used on or excuse, could be issued on the day of the trial. Guilty verdicts had to wait one night to allow feelings of mercy to arise before they would produce uh, or pronounce. Excuse me, a sentencing. All evidence in a trial had to be guaranteed by two witnesses who were separately examined and could not have contact with each other. Yet we see here how they're all trying to get together and and, get their stories to match up. Jewish law stated that a false witness was punishable by death, yet nothing was done to the many false witnesses that came forward. The whole thing was a charade. Ultimately, though, I believe he kept silent to fulfill scripture. For Isaiah the prophet prophesied in Isaiah 53 verse 7 saying, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Again, we see Jesus completely submitted to fulfilling his father's word and his father's plan. Jesus submitted to his father's plan, knowing what it meant for him. He submitted to that plan, trusting that this was the only way. And this prophecy of Isaiah that was uttered some 700 years previous to this time was fulfilled on that day. You know, as a little side note here, just a note for us. I do see in Jesus a wonderful example for us to follow. These people were saying all sorts of lies about Jesus. They were attacking him and his character, falsely accusing him of things he didn't do, and yet he remained silent. You know, that isn't something that we do naturally, okay? First service, I have to apologize. Yeah, first service, I realized I was speaking for everybody else, and I had to say, that's not something I naturally do. Maybe you guys do. But I know it's not something I naturally do, okay? I think that we usually want to fight with them. (laughs) We want to confront them. We want to tell them they're wrong. We want to defend ourselves and we want to present our case and our side of the situation, you know, and, and refute those claims against us. But Jesus doesn't do that, he remains silent. How could he do that when they were saying all sorts of lies about him? Let me suggest to you that it was because he knew that God knew the truth, And that was enough, okay? That was all that he needed. If you have the truth on your side, then you need not worry about anything else. Romans 12, 19 declares, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let God vindicate you. Okay? Let God take care of whatever issue you have going on. Maybe people are saying some stuff at work, or maybe someone's, you know, whatever family situations. Oh, they're saying this, they're saying that. Let God vindicate you. If you if you know that you've done the right thing and you're with the Lord, and and the Lord knows the truth, and you're operating in truth, let the Lord take care of it. Okay. Jesus remained silent. He didn't need to vindicate himself. He didn't have to answer these false accusations. After Jesus continued to remain silent, Caiaphas questioned Jesus again, asking, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Caiaphas knows that this flimsy accusation about destroying the temple wasn't going to stand, and so he just cut straight to the matter at hand, the identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus answered and he said, I am. Okay, His choice of words was no doubt chilling. Okay, I wonder if when he said, I am... If he paused before continuing, I think he did. (laughs) I wonder how the soldiers that were there, still around at this time, how they would have responded. You know, if you are familiar with John's gospel account of this night, you'll recall that when the great multitude came out to arrest Jesus, these 600 or so soldiers, they came out and they questioned, or excuse me, Jesus asked the soldiers, he said, "'Whom are you seeking?' And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus said to them, I am. Our English version puts in the he in John 18, 5, I am he. But the word he is actually in italics, letting us know that it wasn't part of the original manuscripts. Jesus said, I am. And you know what happened when Jesus declared, I am If you look at John chapter 18, verse 6, when Jesus answered, I am, it tells us that all of the soldiers drew back and they fell to the ground. It was like this wave went out and knocked these 600 plus soldiers all to the ground by the mere mention of his word saying, I am. I wonder. As I like to often recreate the image in my, you know, the scene in my own mind, I wonder if people brace themselves when Jesus once again replies here with the statement, I am, and they're like, oh, you know, they're ready for that wind to just come knock them down again. You know, this statement, of course, traces itself back to the days of Moses in the passage about the burning bush. There in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, Moses talked to God from the midst of the burning bush. And when Moses asked for the name of God, God responded by saying, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus very clearly and boldly declared that he was indeed the Christ, that he was the son of the blessed, the great I am. Jesus continued, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's as if Jesus said, what, you're, what you say is true, but it's incomplete. Because let me tell you even more. Jesus' response to Caiaphas is chock full of glorious truths about himself. Jesus claimed his divine nature by agreeing with Caiaphas' question of being the son of the blessed, which was a way that the Jews referred to God as the blessed, okay? When they referred to the blessed, they're talking about God. And so when they said, are you the son of the blessed, they were asking him, are you the son of God? And Jesus affirms his divine nature by saying, yes, I am, okay? He says, I am, but he also claims his human nature by referencing himself as the son of man. Jesus Christ was 100% God, 100% man at the same time. He also makes reference to his ascension into heaven and his place at God's right hand. He makes reference to his second coming on the clouds of heaven. He was so much more than what they could have even imagined. To them, Jesus was just a problem. He was meddling with the status quo and the religious leader's place atop the hierarchy of society. To others, Jesus was just the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. Some saw him as a miracle worker, others as a great teacher, even a prophet. But he was so much more. Let me ask you this question. Who is Jesus to you? Some say he was just a guy that lived a couple thousand years ago. Others won't even give him that. There's people out there today that will claim that he never even existed and that the stories about him are all made up. It's just a crutch that humans have, you know, a story people have made up just to kind of give something to hope in. Some see Jesus as simply a get-out-of-hell-free card, as if they're playing a game of Monopoly. Who do you say Jesus is? Jesus asked this question to his disciples once, and Peter gave an incredible answer that was inspired by the Father himself. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is one of the most important questions to ever ask yourself, and how you answer will determine your place in eternity. Jesus Christ is God. He is real. He's not just something we've made up to make us feel better or to give us some sort of meaning or purpose in life. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and He can be your Savior as well if you will choose to repent and believe in the work that He's done for you. Well, after Jesus declared Himself to be the great I Am and spoke of sitting at the right hand of God, Caiaphas responded by tearing his clothes proclaiming that there was no further need of witnesses, and that all had heard his blasphemy and called for a verdict right then and there. Again, this would be totally against the law, but Caiaphas isn't really concerned with following God and his law. All he's thinking is that he finally has enough to bring accusations against him that were worthy of the death sentence and that he could finally get rid of Jesus. You know, their verdict was to condemn him of being deserving of death. i I kind of keyed in that on my studies, that he is deserving of death. And it struck me that of all the people that have ever walked the face of this earth, the only person that isn't deserving of death is Jesus Christ. Because we are all deserving of death because we've all sinned. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all except that is Jesus Christ. He is the only person that came in human flesh and was ever able to walk this earth and not sin. He is the only one that could ever be said, He is not deserving of death. And so the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, they could not have been more wrong in their verdict. In the final verse of Mark's gospel, it's where the account begins to line back up with what Luke writes about in the primary text from this morning when discussing the beating that Jesus received at the end of his second trial. Again, interestingly, Matthew's gospel tells us that it was actually the religious leaders that came to an already bound Jesus, and they began to spit in his face, and they actually began to beat him, okay? Uh, and the wording there in the Greek informs us that these were full-blown punches with the fist that the religious authorities were delivering to Jesus. Many of the other times, it talks about how he was struck with a, a palm, okay, as if an open-handed slap. But the religious theaters, authorities, excuse me, they came to Jesus and they were punching him in the face with his, with their fist, Okay. Then after that, the religious leaders had finished, the officers then blindfolded him, and they began to strike him, mockingly asking him to prophesy who it was who struck him. It's an incredibly brutal and, and terrible thing to do to anyone, you know, An innocent man, no less, nonetheless, the very son of God, that he would be treated in such a way. And yet, you guys, I want you to all note something very, very important. Okay, because we can read this, and as we're going to get into in the weeks to come, we're going to get into the crucifixion. Okay, we might have uh, be tempted to think, oh, you know, he's the victim, okay, and, and that this is, you know, oh, woe is Jesus. Okay, I want I want to get you guys to to prevent from thinking that way, okay. And I want you to note something with me. Okay? Earlier in this very evening, when Peter grabbed his sword and started slicing away, you guys remember he pulls out his sword and he chops off the right ear of uh, Malchus, the servant of the high priest. In Matthew's account, Jesus told Peter to put his sword in its place and he said this. He said, do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? You may remember that the number of soldiers that came out with the religious leaders was a Roman cohort. Okay, and a Roman cohort—excuse me—cohort was about 600 men. Okay, it was one tenth of a legion. A legion was 6,000 in number. Jesus could have called down more than 12 legions of angels, more than 72,000 angels to come to his aid, to come to his rescue. And I want to remind you guys of something. The power that was available to him was beyond our understanding. Consider the fact that one single angel okay, is recorded in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 19, one single angel having taken out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one single night. That's what one angel can do, okay? Imagine what 72,000 angels could have done, okay? The power at Jesus' disposal at this time was limitless, Okay? He's not, you know, this powerless victim in this case. As Jesus was being spat upon and beaten and slapped and mocked, he could have called down 12 legions of angels to come to his rescue. But he didn't. He did not call upon aid. He did not fight against them. He did not resist them. He did not try to escape this vicious and brutal beating. Why? Why not? It was because although he was undeserving of death, you and I were. And he wanted to pay the price for your sins and for mine. Jesus allowed himself to be spat upon, to be slapped, to be punched, to be mocked and ridiculed, all because of his great love for us and his desire to pay a debt that he did not owe. John 15, 13 declares, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 proclaims, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus endured these trials and the shame and the mockery and the pain and the suffering that came with them because He wanted to pay a debt that we owed for our sin. Well, Turn with me back to our beginning text, if you hopefully still have your little ribbon there or your bulletin or whatever it may be, back to Luke chapter 22, okay? Luke mentions for us the details behind the third and final trial that Jesus endured at the hands of the religious authorities. Uh, picking up in verse 66, we'll read all the way down to the End of the chapter. It says, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Here we read of how the religious authorities rushed to try and make all of this appear to be on the up and up. While Jesus' first trial was before Annas, and his second trial was before Caiaphas and the members of the Jewish council, we see here that they are coming together in an official council meeting, okay? The word for council in the Greek, it's the word synedrion. Uh, we can actually almost hear the transliteration of the English word. This is speaking of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the governing Jewish body that oversaw many religious and even some civil matters amongst the Jews. The Romans allowed the Sanhedrin to have limited power uh, and control in governing the affairs of the Jewish people. The Sanhedrin was composed of 70 members in addition to the high priest, so 71 in total The membership consisted of the chief priest, former high priest, elders, and scribes. And then, you know, much like our governmental system in the United States, uh, we have two major parties. We've got the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, There were two main groups of people within the Sanhedrin as well. There was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the high priest would serve as a sort of president of the Sanhedrin. He would have the power to call meetings and call for decisions from the group. They would even be given the authority to judge and even levy discipline on their people. They were even able to pronounce a sentence of death with the condition that such a sentence would only be valid if it were confirmed by the Roman procurator, who at this time is Pontius Pilate. And more on him next week, Lord willing, okay? And so the Sanhedrin was only allowed to have official meetings during the day. And so once they had gathered their evidence against Jesus, they needed to meet first thing in the morning so that they could come to an official finding, okay? And then bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate for him to confirm their decision of Jesus being deserving of death. Again, this is all for pretense to make things seem like they are legitimate. We know that they are all, they've already made up their mind, they're going to kill Jesus, and that they made up their mind long before any of these trials took place. And once they were in their official meeting place and all accounted for, they said to Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us. This was the Sanhedrin's way of trying to get an official confession out of Jesus. Jesus had already told them who he was. This was just them trying to get Jesus to say or admit to the same thing they got him to admit to during the night so that it could be on the official record during their official meeting. Jesus's response is interesting. He said, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I ask, also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Basically, Jesus was pointing out that this whole situation was a masquerade, that it was, you know, a sham. He knew that nothing he said would change their mind of what they had already decided about who he was. It was pointless to continue this little game they were playing. He follows up with saying, Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. This was speaking of a place of true power and true authority. You see, these religious leaders were sitting in their places of power, their places of authority, trying to lord over Jesus in their official meeting of the Jewish Sanhedrin. But Jesus speaks of how he will be elevated to a true place of power and authority as he ascends to heaven and he takes his place at the right hand of God. And though not a direct yes or no to their question, there was no mistaking what Jesus was saying. He was clearly identifying himself as the Christ, as the Messiah, spoken of in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, it's a messianic psalm, and it opens up, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The place of the right hand of God was for the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, That's where I'm going, to the right hand of God, at the right hand of power, that's where I'm going to be. And so his response was a clear reference to this psalm and the prophecy about him as the Messiah. And as the Messiah, he would sit at the right hand of God and all of his enemies would be made his footstool, meaning that he was going to rule over them all and that they would all one day be subject to him. The roles here would be reversed. Jesus would rule over all as he took his place at the right hand of God. Here he was under their supposed authority, and he's saying, hey, just wait. (laughs) These roles, they're going to be switched. The scriptures attest how God has highly exalted him, referring to Jesus Christ, and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is in that place right now at the right hand of God, and He rules and reigns over all. And so they countered His words with another direct question, are you then the Son of God? And Jesus replied, you rightly say that I am this was another clear reference to the name of God as the great I am. Jesus was affirming what they were saying about him. He was admitting to being the great I am, just as they were saying. You know, for anyone to try and come along and suggest that Jesus never claimed to be God is a clear contradiction to the text before us. You know, there are people out there today, really smart people, you know, philosophers and, and uh, you know, other... Uh, cults and stuff, they'll say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. He's only this, or he's only that. It's like, you're not reading the Bible, okay? Because if you read the Bible, there's only one conclusion that you can come to, okay? Jesus did proclaim to be God, okay? And that is the very reason why they sentenced him to die, because he was claiming to be God, to be equal to God. And so don't let anybody come along and try to say to you, oh, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God, That's just baloney, okay? Don't listen to them. Take them to this scripture and show them. This is why he was killed, because he identified as God. You know, they didn't sentence him to death because he healed people. They didn't sentence him to death because he taught with great authority. They sentenced him to death because he claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be divine in nature. He claimed to be the son of God. Okay, And that is why they sentenced him to die. Jesus is God in the flesh. Okay, This wasn't God simply creating a sacrificial son to take care of the sin of mankind. This was God himself coming in the physical form of man taking on flesh, and then willingly submitting to the cross of Calvary. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he experienced physical death for you and for me. Do not let anybody tell you otherwise, okay? Jesus is God, and he came to pay a price for our sins.